The scripture lesson this morning, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word and we thank you for the apostles' teaching to the Colossians. And we pray that we might understand more fully what it means to put on uh, the heavenly life that you have given to us in Christ our Savior and King. Help us to understand your word by the Holy Spirit, we, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1987, Belinda Carlisle's hit song, Heaven is a Place on Earth, topped the Billboard 100 uh, chart. And the opening lyrics of the song are this. Ooh, baby, do you know what that's worth? Ooh, heaven is the place on earth. They say in heaven, love comes first. We'll make heaven a place on earth. Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. Of course, this song is about romantic love between a man and woman and how that emboldens and helps and other such things, expressing a number of other emotions and sentiments that often come with pop songs like this. To state the obvious, and to the surprise of no one, the song's theology is lacking, but, but the theme or idea of heaven on earth is warranted from Scripture. There's a sense that the tabernacle and temple were heaven on earth, And certainly the incarnation of the Son of God is a manifestation of heaven on earth. And as we've come into chapter 3 of Paul's letter to the Colossians, he's been expressing a heavenly perspective, calling upon the Colossians to set their minds upon the things above, the things where Christ is, the attributes of his kingdom, and not the things that are upon the earth, the things that are associated with the life of sin in the old world in Adam. Again, keep in mind that Paul isn't advocating a form of Gnosticism, a a disembodied spiritualism, but drawing a contrast between the lives lived under the two covenant heads, Jesus or Adam. And as Paul applies the theology of what it means to seek the things that are above, we quickly realize that it has very tangible, earthly manifestations in the daily lives that we lead as the church, even as human beings who are called to the regular stuff That makes up this thing we call life. The same theology is even expressed in the Lord's Prayer. On earth as it is in heaven. Paul is basically giving practical instruction as to what that looks like here in Colossians chapter 3. Last week we considered verses 5 through 11 in which Paul commands the Colossians to put to death what is earthly. And gives two lists of five vices. The first having to do with what we might characterize as personal sins particularly related to the seventh commandment and the second, uh, social sins, overlapping with the theology of the sixth commandment 
particularly as it relates to anger and manifestations of anger. Still more, we considered that sins of the tongue are arguably the greatest enemy to fellowship and unity. Paul also employs language of putting off and putting on, which conjures images of clothing in our minds, and rightly so, but not as though clothing were simply an accessory, but as signifying office or status, our, our royal robes, which mark us out and represent our identity. Related to Paul's exhortation is the principle that any time there's a particular sin that you're dealing with, not only should you repent of it and put it away, but also cultivate, put on its virtuous counterpart, the opposite of the sin. So, in part, the vices that Paul lists in verses 5 through 11 are then countered by the five virtues that he gives in verse 12 and the characteristics of the church that he describes in verses 13 to 17. In verse 12, he repeats the word for put on that he used in verse 10, but here it's commanded, put on, therefore, as elect of God, holy and beloved, heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's language that was formerly used of Israel, but now is used of the church. But even more, we should understand that, that all of the attributes that Paul presents, well, they're, they're true of Christ, first and foremost, for they're affirming our identity in Him. He is God's elect. He is holy. He is beloved. And every other virtue that Paul gives us is true of Christ first, even as he manifested, as he incarnated this heavenly life in his own life and ministry. And notice that you are chosen, you are elect towards something. It's not just mere election, but an election unto holiness and love. Now, this is a bit of a review, but what does it mean to be holy? Well, to be set apart, but even more to have sanctuary access which denotes a degree of formality. But then Paul also says that the elect are beloved. That's more informal language, we might say, reflecting a more personal or intimate relationship, such as between a bride and groom. You know, the church is married to Christ and is His beloved. It's more familial. And Paul's to consider that, that we need both. We, we need the formal and the informal. Both have their place and are appropriate. When we come into worship, that's more formal, as it should be, since we're coming into the presence of the king upon his throne. You know, this isn't the time or place to be informal, even though by and large, that's what has happened to corporate worship in the church. Conversely, time spent with the Lord at home or in other settings can be more informal, which is perfectly appropriate. By way of analogy, which isn't original with me, imagine that there's a king... And he has a daughter. And how he and his daughter interact at night when he's tucking her into bed and saying goodnight is quite different than the interaction they might have the next day when she's with him as he's meeting heads of state or ambassadors from other countries. Certainly the king and princess will interact on a more formal basis in the second setting as is appropriate. So again, we, we need both. And the characteristics, the virtues that Paul goes on to present have to do with how we act toward others. They're primarily characteristics that form and support community. And it's good for us to be exhorted, to be reminded of who we need to be and how we need to act toward one another. That's certainly application outside of the church, but the first level seems to be among the body of believers. 
So as these people, the first characteristic of our clothing is that of compassionate hearts. Compassion is to have a deep sensitivity to the needs of others. It's sympathy for others that affects one's innermost being. Then what's next? Kindness. And something so simple and basic and seemingly insignificant, if we're honest to admit it, but a, but a characteristic that Paul sets forth as essential. This involves outward, uh, outward acts of kindness and even overlaps with the ideas of goodness and mercy. We treat other people in such a fashion that it takes their shortcomings and faults into account and treat them accordingly. You know, are you kind to your spouse? Are you kind to your children? Are you kind to your brother or your sister? How do you treat your friends, classmates, co-workers, and, well, and even strangers as the situation may arise? If you are someone who is kind, as you ought to be, then you will inevitably be slower to anger, which helps to counteract the vices Paul previously mentioned and detailed. And understand what Paul is saying here. Kindness is commanded in the king's kingdom because he himself is kind. And you're his citizens bearing his name and dressed in the robes he's provided. The third of the five virtues that Paul mentions next is humility, which could be characterized as a Christ-like attitude toward oneself and even a, willing, uh, a willingness to forego your own rights, you know, just as Jesus displayed in the incarnation as Paul sets the exemplary humility of Jesus forth in Philippians chapter 2. You know, there's a, we could say that humility is an inward characteristic we're to have, considering others better than ourselves. Paul used uh, this same term back in 2.18 and 23 in relation to the false humility provided, pr- promoted by Judaism, but now presents the true humility as exemplified in Christ. The fourth virtue is meekness or gentleness. This reflects the manner in which you approach other people how you handle them or deal with them, or how you respond to them. The idea of gentleness or meekness can mean that you're, well, you're not necessarily assertive. If you're someone who's always assertive, always having to have things done your way, or always having to contribute to a conversation, then maybe you need a good dose of meekness for the sake of strengthening the life of the body of believers. There's an others-centered aspect of this virtue as well, isn't there? You know, any... And really, gentleness overlaps a fair amount with the fifth and final virtue that Paul sets forth, patience. And this often has to do with how you react to other people or how you ought to react. You know, you should be patient with them. The word can also mean long-suffering. If you suffer long with someone, it also has the idea of enduring with them, even putting up with them, so to speak. You know, how do you react to someone who's obnoxious? Well, you're long-suffering. You give them time to shape up, just as the Lord is long-suffering, is patient with you. Jesus is long-suffering. We must be too. And part of what that means is that it's okay to leave things be, that you don't have to always be stirring things up. I've been around people in reform circles, and maybe you have also, who, who think that everything has to be dealt with, that, that justice has to be served. And sometimes their arguments can sound convincing, and they're really big on rebuking others for the littlest of things. 
Well, there's certainly a place for rebuke, but there's also a place for letting love cover it because love is patient. Long-suffering, the overlooking of sin, overlaps a great deal with forgiveness, which naturally progresses into what Paul goes on to instruct in verse 13. But also notice how these five virtues are counterpoised to the five vices related to anger, which destroy community and fellowship. These five virtues that counteract them, uh, and they, they help to create a stronger community and stronger bonds of fellowship. Well, Paul continues in verse 13, Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, if anyone against another has a complaint, as also the Christ forgave you, thus also you. Bearing with someone means to suffer with him or to endure with her, which echoes the patience already mentioned and is certainly another characteristic that teaches us and helps us to keep our anger in check. But even more, Paul brings up the matter of forgiveness, forgiving each other if anyone against another has a complaint, as also the Christ forgave you, thus also you. We're called to forgive as Christ forgave. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? And it certainly dispels any feeble attempt we might make at holding off from forgiving someone when they ask us to do so. Paul is basically expounding Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18 in answer to Peter's question about how often he should forgive his brother. Hopefully you remember the story of the two servants and the one servant owed his master an amount of money that was so astronomical that it couldn't have been paid off had he had multiple lifetimes to do so. The servant fell down and pleaded with his master, claiming he would pay it back, and even thought, uh, and even though that was impossible, the master took pity on him and forgave the debt. But what happens next? This is what Matthew records. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now there are two apparent implications to what Jesus and Paul are teaching, as one scholar notes. First, it is utterly inappropriate for one who knows the joy and release of being forgiven to refuse to share that blessing with another. Second, it is highly presumptuous to refuse to forgive one whom Christ himself has already forgiven. And once again, we have to consider how important forgiveness is for the life of the church, for its fellowship and unity. Forgiveness is a condemnation that the sin was wrong. But forgiveness is also not counting the sin against the other person anymore. And a sin that you've, you've forgiven shouldn't make you angry later, after the fact. You've already forgiven it. You're no longer keeping score. You're, you're not bitter about it. How does the Lord forgive our sin? Well, He casts it as far as the east is from the west and remembers it no more, as Psalm 103 declares. Now, as far as east is from the west is an infinite distance. And your forgiveness is to follow the example of God. How has the Lord forgiven you in Christ? Well, He's forgiven you all your sin. Go and do likewise with others. 
Go and do likewise with your spouse, with your children, with your church family, and so on. Certainly confess your sin. Confess your sin and seek forgiveness for it and recognize your sin and fault and own it and deal with it biblically and confess your sin as if you're the only one at fault. Don't wait on the other person. Don't make your confession contingent upon someone else's confession. Don't make excuses as part of your responsibility. You don't begin confessing your sin by saying to the other person, you did A and so I did B. You did this which resulted in me doing that. No, take responsibility for your sin and deal with it as you know the Lord would have you to do so. Martin Luther said, the continual forgiveness of our neighbor is the primary and foremost duty of Christians. And this kind of forgiveness replaces the anger that can destroy fellowship. But maybe you wonder, what about the situation where someone has wronged me in some way but has never sought my forgiveness? They've never come to me to confess their sin. What do you do when someone is not willing to repent? Some of you know what this is like. Some of you may be in that kind of situation even now. Well, first of all, repentance doesn't make one worthy of forgiveness. Like God, we must be ready to forgive anyone at any time for any sin. We must be willing and ready, standing there offering forgiveness. There's an unconditional readiness, willingness, and openness to forgive. It's true that forgiveness has a social transaction, as a social transaction can only take place when the one who has done the wrong repents. The one who has done the wrong opens himself up to forgiveness when he confesses and repents. That's when full reconciliation can take place. You can't have that full reconciliation until they repent. But even apart from their repentance, you stand ready to forgive. As Paul says elsewhere, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That involves being at the ready to forgive any time for any sin. And this posture of being ready to forgive keeps bitterness at bay. You can't be bitter and ready to forgive at the same time. It has to be one or the other. And and think about how freeing it is to be ready to forgive. If in God's mercy the other person finally comes to you seeking forgiveness, your words of forgiveness will come, will come so quickly out of your mouth that the other person might think that you don't mean it at first. But to the one who stands at the ready to forgive, then the giving of that forgiveness will be the easiest thing in the world and gladly done. Isn't our Heavenly Father eager and glad to forgive? Isn't the story of the prodigal son an amazing picture of that? Don't you want to be part of a community, part of a church, part of a kingdom where this kind of environment is cultivated? Kind of sounds like heaven on earth. Well, Paul keeps on the full court press and adds love to the equation in verse 14. And above all these, the love, which is the ligament of the maturity. There's an interesting dearth of verbs in verse 14 that English translations fill in, and rightly so. But Paul is describing love as as these ligaments that hold everything together in the body. It overlaps with the ligament imagery he used back in chapter 2 and verse 19. And notice that love leads to maturity, to completion, to perfection. What do we need to grow and mature in the Lord, in the new man? Love. And perhaps that's an attribute that's been overemphasized in some respects, but let's not lose sight of its centrality to our lives and even our life as a church. 
Now, let's, let's give it its proper due, even as the Apostle Paul sets forth its importance to the Colossians. And surely we can make our way over to 1 Corinthians 13, where love is further defined, and even where Paul specifically says that love is patient and kind, that it doesn't insist on its own way, that love keeps no account of evil and is not easily angered. Sounds a lot like what he's been saying to the Colossians, doesn't it? Maybe we can even say that the five virtues that Paul sets forth before the Colossians in verse 12 are all manifestations of love. But at the very least, love is the binding agent. It's what causes the body to stay together as it puts on these necessary virtues for fellowship and unity. Closely related to love is peace, which Paul speaks to in verse 14. And the peace of the Christ act as judge in your hearts, in which also you were called in one body. Now, Paul is doing something pretty interesting here when he tells the Colossians for the peace of Christ, of the Christ, to act as judge in their hearts. Uh, the verb that he uses here is only found here in the New Testament, but it's related to the word he used in 2.18 when he tells the Colossians, let no one decide against you. It has this idea of an umpire. What does an umpire do? Well, in baseball, they call balls and strikes and determine outs according to the rules, etc. They make decisions. In 2.16, Paul told the Colossians, let no one judge you, according to the old order. Then in 2.18, as we noted, let no one umpire against you. So what is to umpire the believer? What is to rule or decide? The peace of Christ. Paul is juxtaposing the claims of Judaism and all the aspects of the old order, the Stoicheia, against the peace that Christ accomplished, even as the apostle declared back in 120 at the end of his hymn. And through him to reconcile the all in him, making peace through the blood of his cross, whether that upon the earth, whether that in the heavens. This peace is fundamental to our lives as Christians because when we understand the peace of Christ on this personal level, that will inevitably lead to peace with one another. Christ has brought peace, and not only should there not be hostility, but Christ's peace ought to rule at the deepest level. And the unity and peace that Christ has accomplished should govern our interaction with one another. And where the peace of Christ rules... Anger and other detriments to fellowship will not be able to gain a foothold. Peace means that war and conflict are not imminent. So is, is that true of your life or of your home? Is the peace of Christ ruling in your heart in such a way that it overflows into the very spheres of your life? Do you have a conscious sense of what Christ accomplished on the cross, of the, the reconciliation that he achieved, which Paul so marvelously expounded upon in chapter 2? Of course, that's how we got to this point in chapter 3, by going through chapter 2. We should understand that when we rightly grasp the victory and reconciliation that Christ has achieved, the peace that he has brought, the peace that is to be down in our inmost innards, deep down in our guts, then we as believers can conduct ourselves with a confidence and calmness in this life at which the watching world can only stand amazed. So ruled, so directed by the peace of Christ that even in the midst of difficulties and discord, we can be governed, can be steeled in our souls by this truth. At the most fundamental point, at the, at the very root of our being, 
we can be directed by peace, have an unfailing sense of peace, which then engenders peace in our lives and then flows out into our relationships with others. Well, at the end of verse 15, Paul tacks on a familiar theme, and thankful being, or and being thankful. Paul's wording here indicates that gratitude is an ongoing responsibility. And once again, we encounter one of Paul's key virtues for cultivating maturity, gratitude, thankfulness. Paul virtually begins the letter with thanksgiving in chapter 1 and verse 3 when he says, we give thanks. Then again in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father, the one having made us fit for the part of the lot of the saints in the light. In 2.6, he writes, therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, in him walk, being firmly rooted and being built up in him, and being made firm in the faith as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. It's an important theme woven as a thread throughout Paul's letter. Then we find at the end of verse 17 from our, from our text this morning. All which whatsoever you do in word or in work, all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul is advocating that our lives are to be those of perpetual, perpetual thanksgiving to our Heavenly Father through the Lord Jesus. And verses 16 and 17 are so jam-packed and the implications so significant that I hope to give them fuller consideration next week. But consider the subtle point that Paul is making. Thankfulness, gratitude cultivates the life of heaven on earth. In Scripture, we aren't given too many glimpses into heaven. But in John's Revelation, we're given some. And what do we find there? On chapter 4. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Then in chapter 7. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And finally in chapter 11. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Thanksgiving abounds in heaven, and so it must abound in our lives, which are to embody heaven upon earth. You know, be, be thankful daily. At the very least, giving gratitude to God for the food He provides, but there's so much more for which we can and ought to be thankful. Consider the life to which you've been reconciled to live the garments of salvation that you've been given by the Lord Jesus. Pursue this new life with thanksgiving, ever falling from your lips as you put on the heavenly life of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And as the gratitude overflows for what Christ has done in forgiving your sins, likewise forgive one another, further embodying the love and peace of Christ. Paul is teaching us what heaven is like. And it's to be chiefly expressed in our treatment of one another in the church. 
He's demonstrating to us the place that heaven has upon the earth. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we again thank you for your word and do pray that you would impress the truth of what Paul is teaching to us evermore upon our hearts. And indeed, may we be so ruled by the peace of Christ that our lives might be overflowing with peace, with love, and with thanksgiving. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.